Hello there and welcome to the Toasted Tale podcast. My name is Jim Lillywhite Bewley and I want to look at another interesting spy from the past in today's episode. In the last few episodes we've been looking at really interesting women in the past who've done some amazing things and have told stories through their lives that I feel they haven't had the proper exposure that they may otherwise deserve. And so on this platform that I have, I can only really do what I can. And so today I want to take another look, put the spotlight maybe, onto another lady who did things that I, with my modern perspective, can look back at what she did and just know that there's no way I could have done anything similar. You know, it's really impressive when you look back. As stories go as well, those who choose a life of espionage, whether they actively pursue it or kind of fall into that line of work, you have to commend them because it must be the most unbelievable way to live your life. The stress levels of being someone who is constantly worrying about being discovered and ensuring that you have enough useful information for your superiors and handlers to use, and the worry that if you don't, if you can't help the cause of your team, if you will, then you may just be thrown out and discarded when your usefulness comes to an end. You have to imagine as well, being an asset of a nation or an interest group, there are probably safer times to be a spy. For example, if your country is at war, then that's a less optimal time to be in the espionage game. If you're going across borders, trying to get intel, in order to help your side win a conflict, then the punishments that you would suffer if found out or discovered in any way, could be much harsher than maybe in peacetime, for example. I was going to say when in preparation for this episode that now would be a relatively good time to be a spy, but then I remembered that actually you kind of got to have a reality check sometimes and there are a lot of conflicts going on. But also I guess it depends on who is being a spy for whom at different times. If you were to be a Ukrainian spy spying on Russia at this time, then you'd probably be quite nervous about being discovered the same way. Goodness, if you're a a Russian in Ukrainian-controlled land, then you've got to imagine that you'd be very, very careful about the information you gather and how you get that information back across the border. With that being said, one of the more interesting, if you can say that a battle or a war is interesting, one of the more interesting ones that we can pinpoint is during the First World War. Now, there's many reasons that you can say that any war is interesting, but I want to focus on the First World War because of a few reasons, really. Well, firstly, it was a time and place where a lot of nations were either in the process or had modernised, to their standards at least. They had industry that were producing all the goods and services that they needed at the time. Their militaries were better funded and better organised. They still used tactics from a bygone era, 
they almost had tactics that relied on people without guns, but now everyone had guns. There was also a lot of old world empires and nation states with old world territories and colonies that supported them, that created this really interesting dynamic where even though you had a conflict on the European sphere, it dragged in like a gravitational black hole of a nation from around the world to fight and die in the soils of East and West Europe. And the number of casualties and deaths in World War I were staggering. The top few nations that had their deaths, Germany, for example, had over 2 million total military deaths from all causes. Russia was a little bit lower, with 1.7 million to 2.25 million. And then you have France and Austria-Hungary, who also were in the millions of their young men dying. And so you can imagine that tension and emotions were incredibly high among those in the countries who were belligerents in the war. And if you were to find, for example, a member of your population, someone maybe you didn't expect, someone who was acting shifty that you suspected of taking state secrets that may help save your sons and fathers and selling them off to the enemy, then you can imagine that people would be really, really annoyed, of course. And so it's during this time that we have the focus of today's podcast, the infamous and also, you could argue, the blueprint for female spies to appear in spy movies in future. The Eye of the Day, Matter Harry. So we should probably start off from the beginning. Matter Harry wasn't originally her first and surname. It was originally, and now give me some space to mispronounce this, as it is Dutch, uh, Margalitha Gertrude Ziel. Um, Apologise to any Dutch listeners who may think that I'm being an absolute fool when trying to pronounce that. But Margalitha was originally born in the Netherlands on August the 7th, 1876. Now, she came from quite a wealthy family. Her father was a man named Adam Ziel, a hat merchant, who for most of his life had been quite opulent and well-to-do, until after a few bad investments, he lost his family's fortune. Margalitha's mother fell ill and died when she was only 15 years old, and following these large family events, she and her three brothers were split up and sent to live with various relatives. I know this happens sometimes today as well when there's massive um, fallout from family events. And I do wonder whether that's the precisely the wrong thing to be doing when there is some tragedy that has happened. Splitting up everyone, removing the support structure seems odd. But that's just a side thing there. Moving on to something that 
we all may, who are listening today, might be able to connect to, is dating. And the difficult journey of trying to find someone you want to spend the rest of your life with. Magalitha, from an early age, knew that she was an attractive lady, a catch, you could say. And in the mid-1890s, she quite courageously, I think, answered a newspaper ad seeking a bride for a man named Rudolf McLeod. Back then, they didn't have apps like Plenty of Fish or Tinder, so you really had to put yourself out there and almost apply to positions like this if the right person came along. Now, Rudolf, by all accounts, was a bald, mustachioed military captain based in the Dutch East Indies, which is modern-day Indonesia, that sort of area. Now, what she did is she sent a striking photo of herself, raven-haired, olive-skinned, to entice him. And despite being 21 years his junior, they wed on July the 11th, 1895. And this was when Margalitha was only 18, almost 19. Now, they were married for around nine years, and during that time it was incredibly rocky indeed. McLeod's heavy drinking and frequent rages over the attention that his wife garnered from the other officers enraged and just twisted whatever love or happiness that could have been found potentially in that relationship. During this time, they had two children, a daughter and son. Now, unfortunately, the son died in 1899 in one of those mysterious events that However, we may want to know, we probably never will know. Apparently, one of the workers in the household in the Indies poisoned him for reasons unknown. By the early 1900s, Margalitha's marriage had deteriorated to a point where her husband and herself split, Rudolf taking their daughter, and Margalitha moving to Paris. It was there where she became the mistress of a French diplomat, who helped her, in like a brainstorming fashion, I assume, figure out what she wanted to do with her future and how she wanted to support herself. Now, I'm pretty sure in everyone's life, there are moments where you are faced with how do you want to live the rest of your life? What are you going to pursue? What are you going to become really good at? or good enough, at least, to be able to get through your days and earn enough money to live in whichever lifestyle you wish. It was around this time, during this relationship, where she decided to become a dancer. As I said earlier, she was a very confident woman, who was, by all accounts, incredibly beautiful and charismatic. Now, she knew what... Those sort of great looks and sexuality, in a sense, can gain for someone willing to use it. And so, in Paris, around 1905, she began performing in front of crowds in the bars and shows of Paris. She did something called a temple dance, which was drew upon the cultural and religious symbolism that she had picked up and observed whilst in the Indies. This was around the time 
where she changed her name to Mata Hari, and she billed herself as a Hindu artist draped in veils. And part of her act would be about artfully dropping these veils from her body in a seductive dance that drove the people of Paris in the saloons and bars absolutely crazy. In one memorable garden performance, Mata Hari appeared nearly naked on a white horse. Now, that may not sound particularly crazy or crass for today's standards, but remember, this was over a hundred years ago, and a lot more people were a lot more modest and reserved. She didn't show everything to the crowd, but did bear the odd buttock here and there. She completed her dramatic transformation from military wife to siren of the East, as I mentioned before, by coining her stage name Mata Hari, which meant Eye of the Day in the Indonesian dialect. Her pioneering way and ability to turn the striptease into some kind of art form captivated critics, and she took this show on the road, starting in Paris, but then moving to other cities on the continent. One reporter in Vienna described Mata Hari as, quote, slender and tall, with a flexible grace of a wild animal, and with blue-black hair, end quote. Another enthralled newspaper writer called her, quote, so feline, extremely feminine, majestically tragic, the thousand curves and movements of her body trembling in a thousand rhythms, end quote. As all things sometimes are, after a few years, Mata Hari's uh, gravitas and ability to draw a crowd had faded a little bit, as younger dancers took what she started, in effect, and uh, ran with it. Her bookings became more sporadic, but she supplemented this income by seducing high-ranking government and military men. Sex for her became a financial practicality, and you've got to remember, at this time, tension was growing militarily around Europe in the build-up to World War I. Now, she came from the Netherlands, which would remain neutral throughout that conflict, and this allowed her to travel across borders in a more free way. And this may be where the first big mistake that Mata Hari made came from. She didn't mind who she dated, of which nationality that is, in Europe, so she would have someone in Paris, someone in London, maybe someone in Germany, Austria, that kind of thing. And so, as troops were being built up and war was coming forward, it became quite understanding that Mata Hari's cavalier travels and liaisons attracted the attention of the British and French intelligence, who at this time put her under surveillance. Unknowing of this and turning close to 40, a now slightly more rotund and uh, older Mata Hari, who was of course now way beyond her dancing days, fell in love with a 21-year-old Russian captain by the name of Vladimir Demaslov. This was in 1916, and during their courtship, it was cut short, with him being sent to the front. Now, 
this was an incredibly bloody time, especially on the Eastern Front. And he quite reasonably suffered an injury during this conflict. It was an injury to his eye, his left side, which led him to be blind in that area. She still cared for him, though, and was determined to earn money to support him. She did this by accepting a lucrative assignment to spy for France for a man named Georges Ladeau, an army captain who assumed that her courtesan contact could be really useful to the French intelligence. It's at this point that things become a bit difficult to really unpick, because there's many different threads to this tale. Matter, her plan, in a sense, was to use her connections to seduce her way up the levels of the German high command, get secrets from them, and hand them over to the French, but she was never able to pull off that goal. She met a German attaché, and began tossing him bits of gossip here and there, hoping to almost hook him on the end, get his attention. This kind of backfired in a major way. When she got named as a German spy in the communications that were going back and forth, these communications, these German communications, were then intercepted by the French, and the French, of course, then believed she had been turned. Now, some historians believed that the Germans suspected Mata Harry was a French spy, and therefore set her up, deliberately sending messages, falsely labelling her as a German spy. Now, they knew that this could be decoded by the French, and so it could have been a very interesting double play if they knew the information themselves. Others believe that she was in fact a German double agent, but in any case, the French authorities arrested Mata Harry for espionage in Paris on February the 13th, 1917. And just to give you an idea about what was happening around this time, in the month previous, we had, in January of that year, the telegram by Alfred Zimmermann, the German foreign officer who was trying to get Mexico into the war, encourage them into the war on the German side, to be another flank to open against the US. In February, in the same month as this, the Germans had resumed unrestricted submarine warfare around the British Isles, their goal of course to knock out Britain from the war by strangling it and starving its people's ability to continue the war. And just to give you an idea, this is one month away from the Russian Revolution starting. So, as you can imagine, tensions are incredibly high. On each side, thousands of troops are dying every day in the pursuit of the national goals. And the issue with all that death is that not much progress is being made on either way. Neither side were particularly inclined, therefore, to provide the highest levels of comfort for their prisoners, and so Mata was thrown into a rat-infested cell within the prison of Saint-Lazare, where she was only really allowed to see one person who was her elderly lawyer, who just so happened to be a former lover of Mata Harry. 
She knew all the right people in the places she needed to, obviously. Now, a lengthy interrogation followed, led by military prosecutors, where they were trying to prove that Mata Harry had been living a fabricated life for many years, embellishing both her story and also what was truth and fiction about her own goals. In her retelling of what she'd been doing and everything she'd been trying to achieve, there are records that she bungled the facts about her whereabouts and activities, and even dropped a bombshell confession where she said about a German diplomat who had once paid her 20,000 francs to gather intelligence on her frequent trips to Paris. She swore on this to the investigators that this had never been part of an actual bargain, and she had always remained faithful to the French cause. She told them it was simply viewed as the money that was compensation for gifts and luggage that had disappeared on a departing train whilst at the German border once. To her accusations by the French interrogators, she exclaimed, quote, A courtesan, I admit, a spy, never. I have always lived for love and pleasure, end quote. To explain what happened next, we need to understand what was happening with the Allies in regards to the war effort. The German military, with all of its might and strength, had been slowly pushing forward into French land. Every move forward, every advance, was a knock to the ego and pride of the Allied forces. And so, real or imagined spies became convenient scapegoats for any or all military losses. Mata Harry's arrest was a prime and almost high-profile case that could divert attention from the failing war effort. Honestly, as well, I, I totally get how this could be a thing. I mean, even now today, it feels like you'll have a big controversy over here, something that's really damning to maybe someone in power. And then suddenly other little things will pop up, little distractions that will raise their heads in order to divert eyes from what these people maybe don't want to be focused on. It's crazy how little we have all changed and how the tactics that have often been used to interact with those at the top and everyone else haven't really changed much for hundreds and thousands of years. I find that fascinating, but back to the story. Now, with all the evidence that had been gained through interrogation, the captain who had been running this made sure that all of the evidence against her was constructed in an unbelievably damning way. Some accounts even suggest that tampering with the evidence had taken place in order to make an even more airtight argument. One of the killer pieces of evidence was when Mata Harry admitted to being paid for sexual favours by a German officer. The prosecutors jumped on this, depicting it as espionage money. Additionally, there was an amount of money that she regularly claimed as a stipend from a Dutch baron 
in her home country, which in court was portrayed as coming from evil German spymasters. This amorous Dutch baron, who could have shed light on the truth, was actually never called to testify, and nor was Mata Harry's maid, who acted as the intermediary for these payments. Another point that we should look at would be remiss if we didn't, is the inherent sexism of the time. Mata Harry's, in air quotes, morals conspired against her as well. Another one of the prosecuting interviewers said it, quote, Without scruples, accustomed to make use of men, she is the type of woman who is born to be a spy, end quote. It seemed that in this time, as in what has been viewed in a lot of times in history, a woman who uses her looks and natural charms to get what she wants in the world can be seen by many people to be a negative trait. Apparently the military tribunal deliberated for less than 45 minutes on the case before returning a guilty verdict. Matahari could only exclaim upon hearing the decision, quote, it's impossible, it's impossible, end quote. She was condemned to death, and her execution by firing squad no less was on October the 15th, 1917, dressed in a blue coat, accented by a tri-corner hat. She arrived at the Paris execution site with a minister and two nuns. After bidding them all farewell, she confidently and briskly walked to the designated spot. She turned to face her executioners, a firing squad in this instance, waved away her blindfold and blew the soldiers a kiss. She was killed instantly when multiple gunshots exploded around her. It was an improbable end for the exotic dancer and courtesan. Her name has become a metaphor for the siren spy who coaxes secrets from her paramours. Her execution merited a scant four paragraphs inside the New York Times, which called her, quote, a woman of great attractiveness with a romantic history, end quote. It's doubtful we'll ever truly know Matahari's real alignment, whether she was indeed a spy for the French or a double agent for the Germans. What we can know for sure, though, is that her story is a fascinating one, and the image of Matahari, the legacy that she's left behind, is one that has permeated through time following her. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story of Mata Harry. She was a incredibly interesting individual, and one who lived a life that actually probably a lot of people would love to have a sliver of. The excitement, the glamour, 
Is there anything that we can learn from this story? I'm not sure, only that after the numerous biographies, cinematic portrayals, including most famously maybe the 1931 film Mata Hari, her image and story and eventual legend still piques curiosity of audiences around the world. I really enjoyed looking into her story. When I was looking for subjects to make episodes on, her name kept coming up and it was almost like the when you're trying to pick someone for a for a football team and some there's a kid in the corner that's got his hands up and you know, pick me, pick me and I thought, well, you know, here we go, let's go on then. We'll pick you for this one and I'm not gonna lie, I really enjoyed learning about it. I am fascinated by the First World War and seeing these individual tales of people living their lives through this time adds just a little bit more colour, a little bit more context to these greatest of world events. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you considered either leaving a comment, sharing the episode with your loved ones and friends, or giving it a like, so I know the sort of subjects you enjoy listening to. And if you want to support the channel and me directly, then I have a Patreon. Patreon is a way that I'm hoping can fund this project and allow me to keep bringing you more interesting and insightful stories about the world we inhabit and the historical icons who helped create it. For anyone considering becoming a Patreon of the Toasted Tale podcast, I greatly appreciate you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Toasted Tale podcast. My name is Jim Lillywhite Bewley, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week for another Toasted Tale by the Fireside.